Hello, and welcome back to The Lake Podcast, where we speak to authors on their recent books covering South Asia. I'm your host, Karthik Nachipan. We live in an age of innovation. Billions of dollars are flowing into philanthropy. Market-driven solutions are seemingly everywhere. Social entrepreneurship mechanisms are flourishing all over the world. When states or firms innovate, They derive prosperity by creating value, adding products through resources at hand. The ability to innovate increases productivity and enhances competitiveness. So innovation could be considered as the basis of creating prosperity. But what really is innovation? Where does innovation occur? And under what conditions? Is innovation inclusive? Is innovation a top-down or bottom-up exercise? Is innovation privileged? When we generally speak of and valorize innovation, we fail to ask such questions, blithely accepting prevailing notions or ideas of what innovation is and how it manifests. Political elites and technocrats in many countries, including India, believe they can innovate their way out of poverty. But can problems of development, often stubborn and deep-rooted in nature, be addressed by an ethos of innovation and entrepreneurialism? In this episode, I speak to Lily Irani, Associate Professor of Communication and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego, on her recent award-winning book, Chasing Innovation, Making Entrepreneurial Citizens in Modern India, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. Chasing Innovation has been awarded the 2020 International Communication Association Outstanding Book Award and the 2019 Diana Forsyth Prize for Feminist Anthropological Research on Work, Science, or Technology, including Biomedicine. Chasing Innovation charts the history and politics of rendering development as a call to entrepreneurship and the pull and contradictions of this call to sort a nation like India into innovators and their others. The book unpacks what professional design is and isn't doing for people and communities and reveals who gets ignored and what goes unaddressed when innovation is championed by governments focused on development. Here is Lily Irani on Chasing Innovation, Making Entrepreneurial Citizens in Modern India. Uh, Lily, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I I enjoyed the book um, and I really want to get to know more about it. But I, I want to start by just asking you how you came to write this book. Um, how did you get interested in issues related to innovation and entrepreneurship in India? Um, I'm really happy to talk about that. And thank you so much for doing this podcast and helping us get these projects that we write about for decades sometimes, you know, into a wider conversation. Um, I got interested in innovation and entrepreneurship actually in part because I went to Stanford as an undergrad and Stanford had 
has sort of fashioned itself as an international a center that disseminates entrepreneurial education and videos um, globally. And then after Stanford, I worked at Google while, as a designer. And Google was expanding into India and China as a, during the height of the BRICS emerging mm. middle-class discourse. And so on the one hand, I got to witness Google designers interviewing designers in places like China and India and asking them questions that were completely based on European assumptions about typography, visuality, and then they would come off these interviews saying, oh, these Indian designers, they don't understand universal principles of good design. And as a child of immigrants, uh, I knew that that was a big red flag to me. Um, and on the other hand, there was this profound insecurity that these tech workers had about, well, could they outsource our jobs? No, they can't outsource our jobs as designers because we're creative. And there's all these like, racialized ideas about who globally is creative and not um, racist ideas, I'll say. And so that got me interested in the politics of doing design as a post-colonial process. And I started asking designers that I knew, um, you know, do you know designers in places like, you know, in India or other parts of the world that have, like where my parents are from, Iran, been cast as not quite modern enough. <laughs> And I met a group of designers in this studio in Delhi. And when I was talking to them about my frustrations with Google, they had actually done some work with Google. They had experienced those frustrations themselves directly in their work. And they said, yeah, why don't you come to Delhi for a few months and spend time at our studio? And if we get along, then let's see how it goes. But we, they were interested in those same power dynamics. That's, um, but I also got interested in innovation and entrepreneurship because I was seeing that strategies that I had learned as an engineer for making software something that's useful for people were starting to be promoted by in kind of global philanthropy as a way of addressing poverty really big societal problems and that seemed curious to me and concerning and so I also wanted to dig deeper into that dimension of like why does this particular form of expertise start to become a solution to a bunch of cultural anxieties and political problems. Right. Uh, before I dig deeper into the book, um, I want to ask you about the interdisciplinary nature of the work, you know, that spans fields like informatics, computer science, history, anthropology, political economy, media studies, South Asian studies, and feminist studies. I don't know if I've mm -hmm. just left anything out. Uh, <laughs> I'll check how, again. <laughs> how, uh, how did this cross-disciplinary approach help you think through the questions related to entrepreneurship and innovation, how it's linked to politics and development in India and the conceptualization of these ideas? Yeah, so I can talk about how, I be, how this interdisciplinary approach emerged chronologically and then I can talk about why why, it, the part, why some parts of it made sense in hindsight. So chronologically, my background is actually in computer science from my undergrad and my master's. I did science and technology and society kinds of work as well. And then my PhD program in informatics, I was concerned originally with power dynamics within design processes and some of the ways that I was describing having come across when I worked at Google. And then as I started learning about power dynamics in the formation of 
expertise and technical knowledge, I had to start reading in science, technology, and society. Um, you know, people in history have a lot of useful things to say about that. Um, colonial governmentalities, for example. Um, anthropology has a lot to say about the social processes by which knowledge comes, mm. you know, comes to take shape, um, layered through with culture and through social relations. So I was following the problem and accessing the kinds of disciplinary conversations that were helping me get traction on you know, like why the rise of this form of expertise and like what's appealing about it to people. Um, one of my mentors and a committee member in grad school is uh, Professor Kavita Philip from UC Irvine's history department. And one of the things that she always taught her students, or she always teaches her students, is that disciplinary divisions are themselves a product of power, mm -hmm. historical power relations. And so that we can see computer science as having nothing to do with history is the product of a set of power relations that have tried to make us see technical expertise is something that need not deal with the social legacies that have produced it. And for history, for historians to say that computer science is of no concern to us, that we don't need to, mm. at least some of us, try to understand, you know, how um, algorithms transform a process of producing traces and archives as much as, um, you know, the paper, <laughs> paper does. Um, but, you know, that, that's also a formation of you know, power, or you could say like a formation, like area, you know, area studies has this Cold War history that kind of renders particular parts of regions as of interest mm -hmm. to scholars and creates funding for that. Um, we don't have area studies people who get paid to go study computer science in India and how it needs to be different to address problems of like Indian nation building, for example. So I think, I think being responsible to the problems the political problems that motivated this project for me and the polit political problems that to some extent made the people that I was studying interested in this project demanded that I pull, I cross those boundaries. But it wasn't always that clean or easy when you're trying to translate across so many languages. Yeah, and, and I think the book really speaks to India's post-colonial moment now um, because you draw from so many different approaches and fields. Um, and, and you do that through an ethnographic lens, um, which really unpacks the everyday practices of some of the processes of innovation you, you, uh, you, you focus on. Uh, just methodologically, how did you know, immersing yourself in these environments help you uh, speak to some of the, the larger questions that the book um, talks about? Mm. Yeah, immersing myself in the environments was really important. Um, maybe also having worked in those environments mm -hmm. myself for many years, I mean, not in India, but in Silicon Valley. I think one of the things that fascinated me when I was really diving into the, the field work and proposing it for my dissertation was the ways that design could be such a capacious language that takes as its concern all kinds of social and political phenomena as its domain of intervention. But at the end of the day, you have people who are working in a design studio and then taking trips out to villages or trips out to a peripheral area of the city and doing interviews, making films, analyzing things. And you know, if you, you think about like colonial, like kind of colonial anthropology of putting together knowledge from a distance that suits the operations of power. It's like the, the spatial formations, the temporal rhythms 
of really affected what kinds of relationships you could build as you were doing the work, you know, with what kinds of organizations, with what kinds of movements. And in, in that sense, like what kind of knowledge could be produced. But so it wouldn't be sufficient mm -hmm. to do a discourse analysis to understand how the discourse kind of, how, how such a capacious discourse like keeps reproducing boundaries around what people can actually push for or the coalitions that they can form as they're working in that modality. And like, I think for that, you really had to understand like what it's like to stay up all night at a hackathon and like be really excited about working for without pay because you're hoping to make the, you know, your community better, but you also have accepted the idea that all important things can be done in an urgent few weekends <laughs> and then seeded from there. Um, yeah, so I, I think being embedded in the environment gave me a kind of, it also taught me how seductive that is because in some ways I fit in, like when I was at the hackathon that I talk about in the book, I had a friend who's an anthropologist, not from a technical background. He also participated in it. And, you know, I was in that hackathon. I'm like, I know how to talk to people. I know how to time my food. Oh, these people are having an argument. Let me find a way for them to, let me find a point of overlap and agreement so we can proceed with the project rather than I was prioritizing finding the third way to move forward. And then my friend who's the anthropologist was like, why would you even want to find this third way in this project? This guy, you don't like, I don't trust him to take the project forward in the ways that you're hoping for it to be taken forward. Why are we working? Who like, why are we working this hard when, you know, I need to go take care of my family members. Mm -hmm. um, and so his participation also cast my own habitus into high relief. And I tried to write about that more in the book, like because I think there's an international community of people who come through mm -hmm. computer science programs, this kind of entrepreneurial education. They learn to think about time and relationships and like what's too um, conflictual to be said in a workshop or a work situation and um, how you narrow the scope of your politics to be to keep the projects moving forward at all times it's like the core of this entrepreneurial um habitus i think that yeah i think studying it from afar like all of those pieces would have been missing uh the book you know it, it also makes sense of india's transformation from an agrarian economy to an economy that is now dominated by services um you know, through this idea of entrepreneurial citizenship um, which describes the rights and obligations um, citizens have to engage in innovation. Mm -hmm. um, Indian entrepreneurs, you know, at least since the 1980s, you know, have viewed their obligations to India's development project through innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, I wondered as I read this book, you know, if this was a new idea or a newer version of ideas <laughs> that were in some ways present uh, soon after India became independent and India's prime minister um, had this clear emphasis on science and technology and innovation mm -hmm. and building up India's capacities in those areas. So you're absolutely right that these ideas have been around um, since, since independence and the form they take and some of the meanings have shifted over time. And that was something I really tried to pay attention to in the book. Um, so there's one example when you talk about innovation I can, we can think about how the meaning of that has changed. So there's this monument outside of Timurthi Library in um, Timurthi Bhavan in Delhi. And this monument says a quote from Nehru, uh, creation is the sign of life, not repetition 
an in imitation. So we could recognize that quote as being very at home right now in the world of kind of Silicon Valley and making new stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you read the context in which that quote was written in Eru's writing, or if you know, I looked at old five-year plans from, uh, I, I looked at every time innovation was mentioned in any five-year plan actually <laughs> since independence. Um, innovation used to mean the capacity to absorb ideas from, or techniques from elsewhere. So this quote about creation as a sign of life is about assimilating modern technologies or modern ways of doing things. And the anxiety was that, you know, Indians would be too traditional and not absorb these new modern ways of doing things that were suited to the national task. But as you get through into the 1980s, um, you know, innovation actually still has this kind of a, connotation of the ability to absorb new ways of doing things. There, Five-year plans will talk about innovation in um, the planning commission or in NGOs, um, but it's only when you start to get into the 90s with the rise of intellectual property and the biotech industry and the software industry that innovation comes to be seen as the production of new things mm -hmm. as commodities, as intellectual property, as that which can bring economic growth. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's when you get innovators mm -hmm. who are able to produce that. Whereas before innovation was this broadly distributed social process. So yes, the, I, you know, Nehru did care a lot about science and technology, but he cared about it as a process that kind of belongs to a very wide collective. And there was much less of a focus on these like individual, what Kavita Philip calls a technological author or the hero in some of her writing. And, and the shift we start to see is the valorization of those heroes as stand-ins for the valorization of the high-tech industries that come to be privileged in a lot of economic policy since the 90s in India. Yeah. So that's one, that's one way of thinking about the question that you've asked. Um, but also, I, I think one of the things that I, one of, one of the other threads that's been historically present since independence has been a kind of hierarchy. Uh, this is what part of the Chatterjee calls the hierarchy between civil society and political society, civil society being those who are prepared for the full responsibilities of democracy, um, political society being those who are governed, um, who are not seen, who are seen as not quite ready yet. Um, or you could think about it very concretely in terms of Nehru's work creating a domain of kind of managerial and tech technical cadres through the Indian Institutes of Management, Indian Institutes of Technology, the National Institute of Design, where he described India as a nation of needy masses. And then these technical cadres would be people who would stand aside from what you know, he called the squabble of politics to make these expert decisions about how planning should work. Mm -hmm. And so that hierarchy um, and that faith in kind of managerial knowledge still very much exists in what I'm calling entrepreneurial citizenship that I've identified. But in one, instead of that cadre of experts being accountable to a national planning apparatus, they're accountable to the strictures of the market, to venture capital funding, to making economic value, mm -hmm. to making contributions that register as economic growth. That's, you know, so that hierarchy remains. And then the other flip, the other flip, is, and this is a very, the other flip is like in the 90s, you kind of had the global Indian, the software engineer who could go abroad and bring all this economic growth home. Um, in 2004, when the BJP had its surprise loss 
in the elections. Again, I was reading planning documents and I was also reading um, government documents kind of before that election and after that election. And you get this transformation of this global Indian as this expert entrepreneur, this managerial IIT, IAM kind of figure to a much more inclusive idea of the entrepreneur that can include poor people, you know, hawkers on the streets. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that there's a, there's a necessity to sell the reliance of the state on private citizens to produce, you know, to produce the kinds, you know, kinds of industries that are going to be needed post-liberalization. Now there's a rhetoric that says, oh, this could be the poorest of the poor or these managerial elites. And so there's an attempt to kind of make it look like it benefits everybody. Right. In a a way that connects to all the the literature from authors like C.K. Prahlad, for example, who talk about the bottom billion and how we need to lift up you know the in the masses i mean that language does does connect uh to them yeah go ahead so ck Prahalad, like that precise moment of 2004 um i was looking at nascom nascom mm-hmm. is the it lobbying organization within india so i was looking at what nascom was putting on as their conferences before the 2004 election and after the 2004 election before the 2004 election there they were having meetings about how to expand, you know, call centers and value-added services in the global economy and the policies they would need for that. Right after the election, C.K. Prahalad, who had written op-eds in India before, his ideas were present, but now he's keynoting these NASCOM events. So in the writing of people like C.K. Prahalad and that kind of Nehruvian sentiment of we must all do our bits that's been so much part of people's upbringing, um, you know, they seized upon that now as kind of addressing a political problem of legitimacy for, for you know, dom- for domestic industries, especially the IT industries, which are not seen as kind of serving domestic priorities as much. Right. You know, we live in an era of technological fixes and, you know, techno-solutionism, you know, and, and, and the pandemic, you know, appears to have accelerated trends across all areas of social and political life. You know, but these individual technological logics and mo- and movements and moments are also not universal or, or seemingly contagious, but are inflected and conditioned through specific histories and national projects. Um, why is it important, as you do in the book, you know, with India, to study and unpack the national histories uh, shaping trends related to technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship? I mean, one of the reasons it was really important for me to understand the national history is that it's so common for scholars or kind of thought leaders to say, oh, this idea came from Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley is either the engine of progress, uh, the engine of this new progressive way of working and inventing for the world, or they're the ones who are all to blame for it. (laughs) And I don't think that's not an account that gives us an accurate, that doesn't give us an accurate accounting of the power dynamics that lead to the rise of the entrepreneur as this ideal figure that we're all supposed to invest in, we're supposed to prioritize and we're supposed to celebrate. Um, so if we want to under, and if we assume that Silicon Valley is the source of all these things, like one response you could have is, you know, in India, you could say, okay, let's have a post-colonial nationalist response. Like mm-hmm. let's have, 
Indian design, Indian innovation, not the Silicon Valley mode of innovation. But we have those accounts, and those accounts themselves come out of the Indian business press. Jugad innovation, you know, there's money to be made there as well in making arguments about national and cultural distinction. So that was, that was not so much my goal. My goal was to understand how, there's almost to understand the method for seeing how the national is being constituted through these transnational dynamics, both in ways that, you know, put Indian policymakers in a corner um, where they're being pushed by social movements, say around intellectual property from one side, but they're being pushed by the World Intellectual Property Organization from another side. And the pro and what we see as this kind of entrepreneurial citizenship is, is a product of those struggles. <laughs> um, and by locating these um, cultural phenomena, these technological formations in those struggles, then I hope that it becomes clearer for those of us who want to change how technology gets developed um, and in some sense who owns the future, it gives us clearer notes on all the different places where this political project is working. Like if, you know, is it's working at the level of policy, it's working at the level of really um, old um, investments in national institutions like the IITs and IAMs, which as Ajanta Subramaniam argues is a way that caste privilege gets laundered mm -hmm. into managerial and technocratic um, superiority and then gives people the power to make decisions over the lives of others. Um, you know, if we actually want to have uh, forms of technology that can serve the liberation of more people, we need to be specific about how those, um, those, those struggles and the challenges of innovating are threaded through with all of those both local and global dynamics. Yeah, no, and there's also a clear political economy here, as you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of mm -hmm. different actors who have maybe variant preferences in how they would like um, India's economic future to be. And, and, and I think that is also, that, that is part of the story which you are um, unpacking. Um, you know, as as I read Absolutely. the and as as I read the book, you know, I I thought I also thought more about the making of of entrepreneurial citizenship. Um, you know, the Indian state, as generally understood, you know, did not really know um, much about um, investing in in innovation um, as it decolonized. You know, uh, centralized planning took root. Trade was um, disregarded. Uh, you know, even through the 1970s and 1980s, very few people could really envisage a, a big services or software industry um, or a consulting industry to form in India. But as it turned out, that's what happened. Um, you know, how did this process unfold between the state and its entrepreneurs? Yeah, um, I think that the, the usual story that the Indian state was all about planning. Uh, one thing that it misses is the ways that entrepreneurs had historically also been a way to plug the gap. You know, even as as early as the 70s, there were mm -hmm. programs that would train entrepreneurs in small medium enterprises all over rural India. And they trained something like 170,000 people <laughs> is in one of the five-year plans uh, it, to go to places that, you know, where there where centralized planning couldn't create jobs. And they, they saw entrepreneurs as people who could be trained 
to then develop industries. Um, they also, uh, that same five-year plan talked about programs to train scientists and engineers who are out of work in entrepreneurial strategies so that they could then turn their technical skills into, again, industries in India. But this is before the boom of the kind of software industry that we usually talk about when we talk about the 80s. Um, and so, and that, that way that entrepreneurs became a way of plugging the gap in centralized planning and um, the realities of economic life. Um, that, that you can see that continuing into the 90s when India wants to liberalize, the, you know, the Indian state wants to liberalize the economy. Domestic entrepreneurs are saying, domestic industrialists like the Tatas are saying, you know, mm. please don't do this. We don't want to face international competition. Um, the state says, well, you know, we're going to actually be selling off a lot of are, we're going to be selling off a lot of national industries and you as you need to become entrepreneurs like those successful entrepreneurs, Indian entrepreneurs abroad. There's nothing lacking in your character. You, the domestic industrialist, need to step up out of this infantile stage and fit, fill the gap again. Um, and this is something Lata Varadarajan has written a lot about. Um, so... I see, like, I, I see this process of the making of entrepreneurial citizenship it's almost like the it's almost like the technology story um, wasn't that central. It was almost it almost seems like a historical coincidence to me that it was tech that you had a cadre of people who had been trained in India who were abroad who'd be pointed to as evidence that Indian elites would be able to get through liberalization and create industries without the states taking such an active hand. But then when that software industry, when because of the rise of intellectual property as a central policy um, globally in the starting kind of the early 90s, but India harmonizes its policies with the World Intellectual Property uh, Organization 2004. Um, like, it, like that's that's the thing that really takes the software industry as far as i understand you might actually i think this is your area of expertise i'd be curious what you think um from my reading it seemed like that is the point where the software industry became not only an area where you can create more jobs but an area where you can create whole new monopolies on future profits <laughs> and you start seeing in the five-year plans this um much larger priority and space given to innovation as a term to intellectual property to inventors um, to technology yeah but but then the tech sector what they have to do to legitimate that is to say well that what the tech sector produces is going to benefit everybody mm -hmm. it's going to produce both technologies for the poor and it's going to produce tons of new jobs um, it's not clear how true that is. I believe that India has been going through a phase of deindustrialization lately, but the glittering promise of technology as part of modernity was only a very, it was a part of the story that makes this all more plausible, but it seemed like when you look under the hood, there's these specific policy struggles <laughs> that, um, that, that give shape to the particular kind of entrepreneurial citizen and how technological they are when they're being promoted by the state and by uh, different kinds of financial or industrial elites. Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and I think all these trends in India also occurred at a time when globalization was accelerating um, worldwide. And you had, um, you know, 
entities like the World Trade Organization that was working to remove barriers on areas like services and computers and, mm -hmm. and um, intellectual property, you know, which would mm -hmm. allow countries like India to embed itself within a rapidly changing international economy and, mm -hmm. and you know, exploit opportunities you know, in markets like the United States and Europe um, in mm -hmm. areas like computing and um, and yeah and, and that's when you saw entities like Infosys like rise and emerge and really uh, capitalize on on that conjuncture um, globally as well. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to just absolutely. move to we're, we're going to move to another short segment called underrated or overrated. Um, Lily, okay. I'll just throw out a few words at you and then you can just say if it's underrated, overrated, or properly rated, and then maybe explain why. Uh, okay. San Diego. Ooh, I would say overrated and underrated. It's overrated and then whenever I tell people I'm from, I'm living in San Diego, they say, oh, it's such a beautiful place. Um, uh, you know, they see the images of palm trees and beaches and, you know, the, San Diego has an industry that demands that we think of San Diego that way. But it's underrated in terms of a place to try to understand technology, power and political economy, because we sit here on the border. There's a lot of people working in the military industry, a lot of technology in the United States gets developed through in part through military research. And that story doesn't get told nearly as much as a Silicon Valley story. And, um, and yet there's, you know, the way that, you know, in my book that I wrote about the ways that kind of race structures whose creativity gets seen as innovation, when you look between the US and India, those same kinds of relations are happening right across the border 20 minutes from my house. And so in that sense, um, it's underrated. And the same politics that I cared about in writing this book, there's a lot of work to do here as well. Mm. Uh, philanthro capitalism. Oh my gosh. Overrated. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that um, Anand Giriharadas has this book called Winners Take All, and he talks about philanthro capitalism as you know, a product of these places like the Aspen Institute and Davos, and raises the question of whether people should even have so much accumulated wealth that they should be able to direct how communities come together to solve problems and which problems they should be focused on solving. So um, philanthropic capitalism is highly overrated in that sense. But I think what I focus on more in my book is what effect those elite hope building projects have in getting lots of people who are in colleges and universities who might've joined a political movement, it gets them to redirect their efforts to these kind of social entrepreneurship efforts or trying to make change from the inside of institutions um, at the cost of building a kind of stronger democratic collective politics of building public resources for the features of kind of technology that we need. So very overrated. Uh, subaltern studies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, subaltern studies, I think they adequately rated. <laughs> um, I think they get a lot, of, you know, subaltern studies gets a lot of, well, there's a lot of diversity within subaltern studies. There's what people who are outside of area studies think subaltern studies is, and they read a few key texts and they talk about difference and the problems of characterizing or knowing difference. And then there's so much 
that, was, that has been part of the history of subaltern studies. It's been about, you know, like feminist interventions or trying to understand the making of caste even and, uh, and those relationships are still there. Those people are still making knowledge. And so, yeah, no field formation tells the whole story or, um, you know, gives, gets, distributes credit evenly for all of the intellectual contributions. But subaltern studies, asking the question of whose work or contributions to history you can know and how you know, understanding the limits of that should completely reshape your approach to making knowledge or taking action. I mean, that seems like an important, important lesson. Uh, smart cities. Smart cities, I would say certainly, certainly overrated and perhaps um, masquerading for a massive centralization of data generation about our lives for the purposes of monetization and securitization that we only have, that we can only begin to imagine um, because once you aggregate all that data then it's up to a bunch of entrepreneurial citizens to figure out what to do with it in the name of making the world a better place, but mm -hmm. also in the name of making some money for venture capital. So smart cities are a big concern. I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, working at Google. <laughs> uh, I would say um, overrated in that so you know, Google promises that you're there to not be evil and make the world a better place, but you're only able to do so through the narrow goggles of the kinds of infrastructural interventions that Google can make. And kind of like with entrepreneurial citizenship, it sort of distracts you from other ways that you could be working with people collectively to imagine and work towards different futures, say social movements, so overrated. And the last one is uh, data sovereignty. Overrated. <laughs> data sovereignty is one of these post-colonial solutions that I think misses the mark because when you have Ambani saying that the problem with data is that we need to have national sovereignty over it and that his industries essentially need to own all of it, that doesn't really make me feel a whole lot better for the ways that everyday people have some ability to shape how data gets used you know, to intervene in their lives. Mm. Uh, people actually are calling it data colonialism as well in India now, and that's I mean, oh. you know, related, right? I actually think data colonialism is what I was thinking of. Uh, I, uh, Mukesh Ambani said that yeah. this is data colonialism, we are suffering, right? Yeah. And that data sovereignty is the solution so, to it. So he uses it interchangeably. And, and they, I, think, I yeah. think they all do use it interchangeably in India um, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a way of saying that we should all get on board for this national good that we all supposedly hold in common, mm -hmm. but the ability to understand, control, and build things onto data is so unequally distributed yeah. everywhere, including in India and the United States. Yeah. And so the people who are calling for sovereignty are the ones who are the sovereigns of the data yeah. that would be held domestically. You know, you know, that's a great segue to my next question. You know, um, innovation and, and, and entrepreneurship, you know, does not unfold in a vacuum or a blank slate, right? You know, and, and especially in India, the, the 
the practices and processes of innovation and entrepreneurship that you describe in the book through design studios, social impact hubs, and hackathons, you know, manifest around a broader edifice of inequality, exclusion, oppression, and, and hierarchy. Uh, you know, in some ways, innovation and an ethos of entrepreneurialism, you know, perpetuates these trends. Um, so is, is such an ethos fundamentally undemocratic? Uh, and, and, and what does that say about Indian politics now when, where you see projects of nation building um, and state building that are grounded on technologies uh, that are fueled ostensibly fueled by innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that the ethos of entrepreneurship is, it's meant to sound democratic in that anyone can become an entrepreneur, but it is actually undemocratic fundamentally for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is that it tends to invite us to see history as the product of either powerful kind of individuals who are champions of some kind of innovation or change or small groups. Walter Isaacson, who's a biographer of Steve Jobs for a book, and then his next book was called The Innovators, and it was about small groups innovating. But small groups are still not a social movement. Small groups are still not you know, elected, you know, people that are at least elected and accountable by being kicked out during the next election. Um, so this kind of entrepreneurial citizenship invites us to look for powerful individuals. And I think it also invites us to then empower powerful individuals or small groups through the allocation of resources, whether that's venture capital funding or when the state says, like India's, um, India had the Corporate Social Responsibility Act. And companies that were of a certain size were required to give certain percentage of um, certain percentage to social responsibility projects. But included in that were not only programs for you know, women or children or environmental remediation, but programs to fund uh, entrepreneurship incubators at elite universities. So it's a collection of it collects social resources to people who are well equipped to be recognized as those kinds of powerful people and that tends to be men it tends to be people in the upper caste it tends to be people people who speak english um it tends to erase the kinds of collective contributions that make change actually happen maybe the neruvian idea of collectively absorbing transformations is better another way that it can be fundamentally undemocratic is the ways that I found that these entrepreneurial practices were really based around a sense of manufactured urgency. And so, you know, don't overthink and I don't have analysis paralysis, don't analyze an idea forever, prototype, try it out and learn. That seems innocent democratically on its surface, but this would then get ritualized in projects that were set up to be short term, they were set up to work at the speed of the fastest most well-resourced people who could push a project forward as opposed to the time that it would take to build trust, to get feedback, to enlist like a much wider coalition of people who would want to do a project. And they were unable to do that because of the structure of like venture capital funding or funding that's like based on like funding small teams. Um, so that time shut down democratic politics. And I argue that in one of my chapters specifically, I call this entrepreneurial time. Um, and I think the third way it's anti-democratic is that it, uh, entrepreneurial 
citizenship just invites us to, it celebrates people who make projects happen with, with resources that they hustle in some sense, whether they hustle it from venture capital or they hustle it by working, you know, going and networking with their uncles and aunts in the US to collect money, or they maybe they hustle it by getting a grant from the state through their connections. Um, but the ability to gather resources for one's own efforts is celebrated as something that's a positive attribute rather than evidence of uh, of a politics that leaves the decisions about the distributions of resources to a struggle for power, a struggle for power among kind of entrepreneurs who are grabbing at resources rather than um, going through, a, you know, including people in the process who don't have the ability to hustle for resources, but might be very impacted by these processes. So then, so then how can we then recover a sense of politics? Here, or how do we repoliticize technology and innovation to ensure its pernicious uh, effects are contained and its fruits are adequately shared and distributed? I think that's a really good question. I, to be honest, am not sure what the answer is. And I say that because I, I want to be having that conversation with you and with everyone who's listening to this podcast. Please write both of us. Um, because I think when I finished the book, I thought, you know, it's, it's easy to be nostalgic for a state that can plan and be the seat of unitary reason for the nation. <laughs> um, but, you know, that also was really strongly shaped by elite assumptions about what poorer people want or need or what is right and wrong about their lives. And I would have, and, and now, you know, a lot of the technology and innovation that we have is also tied in with this massive data collection infrastructure, because mm -hmm. if data is the new oil, then political economy is driving lots of surveillance. And so in that sense, neither state nor very large industries seem like where I want to place my bets in shaping the future of technology. So I, one thing I've taken a lot of inspiration in is in technology workers and also people outside of the tech industry kind of in parallel realizing that they have an interest and a stake in how technologies are built and what data gets collected and how they're designed and that their interests are not the same as Larry Page's or Sergey Brin's or Steve Jobs, rest, his soul, you know, rest in peace or Nandan Nilukani. And so we see this in tech worker coalition, like various social movements that form within tech companies to fight certain technologies that violate human rights like the Google Maven project. Um, we see this in immigrant rights projects in different countries where they're um, trying to form coalitions to put pressure on technology companies and get certain technology companies boycotted. Um, and we need to, but the product of where that struggle leads in terms of a better formation, I don't know. Sometimes I just think that paying, um, yeah, I should leave that to, you know, I would love to be in dialogue with people who've thought about technology policy and institutions a lot longer and harder than I have. So if you would like to be one of those people, I would love to work on that problem with you. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm actually looking at how big tech is growing in India and how, mm. and, and it's, it's what that, what's, what the impact of that growth will be on, on politics, on regulation, 
on mm-hmm. India's political economy going forward. Uh, so I'm really interested in, in, in those questions and I'm working on that now too. So I was really curious to um, you know, see what your views are. And as we, as, as we go into, I mean, especially in the developing world, you're, you, you probably are gonna see states that are far more beholden to technology and technology mm-hmm. companies than ever before. And you're seeing that in some way in India now. Um, mm. So in a way, we need to start thinking about how do we, how does the politics around technology also evolve, right? Yeah. Well, when you say in India, um, when you say beholden technology companies, it would seem like, you know, Reliance Industries mm. and Flipkart, like those are the, um, it was Paytm, like those are the important companies like Americans would like to think that Google and Facebook are actually the important companies but I don't I don't see it that way (laughs) um to some extent as much as those big American companies would like that to be the case Mm -hmm. um but then that raises the question of India itself as an exporter of technology and so with the Aadhaar project we didn't talk about Aadhaar but Aadhaar this universal ID project Mm -hmm. that's something that's being very much designed in India with the help from the World Bank and it's being designed for export to other developing countries, right? So part of the politics of technology actually needs to exceed the national and look at, you know, this, what they're calling this multipolar world now, Mm. where there are these, China, India, and the United States are all making bets on which features of technology they want to implant as infrastructure into other places. And so, you know, our politics of technology needs to work with people all over the world, well beyond what area studies teaches us to do or our nation state imaginaries teach us to do. Yeah, and more and more as uh, capitalism becomes digital and gets more digitized than ever before. And what we're seeing physically uh, assumes a more digital face. And that, that is happening feverishly in India now and possibly in other countries as well. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm curious, you know, how your book and research has been received in India and, and how have Indians engaged with the arguments you advance and the issues you cover, and not just as subjects, um, part of a larger development project, uh, but also mm-hmm. other scholars and thinkers? Yeah, it's a really important question to me. Um, so there's a couple of kinds of thinkers and thinkers in India that I, I've engaged with. Um, so one, one group that I thought a lot about as I was writing my book were the people that I was studying in the design studios. Mm-hmm. And I'm in touch with, you know, I'm in touch with some of them. Um, when I was writing the book, a couple of them read chapters. Um, some of them felt guilty for not reading chapters, which is not my intention. Um, but one of the things that was interesting was that the people who, especially the people who are more junior in the design studio or the people who were frustrated by some of the politics they'd get kind of forced into because of the way clients and the funding was set up. Um, you know, it, it feel, you know, the thing that they would appreciate about my book, the reaction I would get or the, te- the text leading up to the book was, oh, like you put your finger on something that we kept thinking was like our fault. Like we just did it better next time. We managed a project better next time. We set better expectations next time. We left and didn't take that client, you know? It's like, no, there's a structural process that's happening. Like people are being, you know, project, you know, if you want to make projects that contribute to your community that your grandma can be proud of, that you're helping build toilets in rural India, like 
that's being your you know your only your your few options are actually um, to do it in this way if you want to make a living and and we're not really we we've been de-skilled of engaging in more collective mm -hmm. politics so that was one kind of reaction was like thanks for naming that um, it's helpful to name that uh, another kind of reaction I got was from one of my friends was saying she was a design student she was trained in design she works in India. Uh, when she read the history of design, she was like, I never really, we never got taught the history of design and like how it could have been otherwise and how policies were shaping it. You know, you get taught to do the methods and techniques. And so that was something that um, they found helpful and I found helpful because I also was a designer and I also want to know like, why our repertoire has promised to do so much and yet is so limited politically. Um, and, and then there's people who have been trying to make sense of entrepreneurship and innovation like um, I spent some time at Triple ITB in Bangalore, They're like NIAS, like Carol Lupadio's group, um, Center for Internet and Society, and trying to make sense of okay, when when do these tech like when does it matter that the tech is digitally is digital like all the smart cities fintech stuff, and how much of that is actually older than the digital? Like part of what my book says is like a lot of what we see with fintech and smart cities in India. A lot of those structures have actually been laid in place over you know, decades or like half a century. <laughs> and the digital layer adds an extra layer of like surveillance and complexity to it. Um, so I have found it really interesting to engage with those scholars and thinkers um, because they're also trying to change the way that these technologies and policies get seen within India. And that was always a point of this research for me is to learn why I'm being asked to do things in this way and identify the space that I'm being told not to look at so we can push for something better collectively. Right. Uh, Lily, what are you reading these days? And, and, and I'm mm. also curious to, to uh, find out how you decide what to read. Cause you, oh you, my gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sometimes, I, yeah, this, I, 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 I have a phrase called snacking on books now, mm -hmm. where um, there's also a tech metaphor, like breath first search versus death first search. Um, so you know, right now I'm in the middle of like five books um, and then I'll like dive into one of them to do some work with it. And then maybe like I'll reread it or um, that's kind of how I proceed. So right now the book that's on my desk is called Pacifying the Homeland, mm -hmm. Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. Um, it's a story of policing in the United States and the transformation of policing into a practice that's meant to deal with deindustrialization, with the kinds of instability that um, the state sees all around it, at different levels, like city level, federal level. And actually, this was very much part of the energy in India, too. Like planning documents would always talk about all the rebellious energies that needed to be channelized through entrepreneurship, right? Um, so this book is about turning policing into both a practice of knowing the community through community policing and also CIA style surveillance and intelligence practices. Because I think that we do not attend enough in digital media and tech studies to the role of policing in the military in the formation of those infrastructures that we are trying to write about. Um, I'm also writing, reading Simone Brown's Dark Matters on the surveillance of blackness. Um, again, because in San Diego, I started working on smart cities 
this is kind of shaped by conversations I was having with friends in India about how big smart cities have been there. Um, and it became clear in San Diego that smart cities were sold as, hey, we're going to have all these surveillance, these street lamps are going to generate open data, it's going to make all these civic innovations possible. The APIs don't work, the object detection sucks, and the police are the biggest consumers of the data streams. Um, and so there's this, in, the politics of the smart cities in San Diego have really been built on the politics of people who've been trying to um, fight the criminalization of their communities. And then they are starting to recognize very deeply pieces of the tech politics that a lot of us were not even recognizing that were there all along. Um, so these are two books that are helping me with that. And, and finally, I don't, yeah. And finally, mm -hmm. what are you working on next? I, I'm just at the beginning of a sabbatical. And so, um, and I just got tenure last year. And so oh. I'm, 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 I'm actually working on whatever needs to be worked on in the real situation that I find myself surrounded by. Um, mm -hmm. So I, th I think that what I'm, working on right now is a book on data and policing that I'm co-authoring with a professor at City College here in San Diego, um, Khaled Alexander, and we're talking about data and the processes of othering that manifest through policing and militarization and surveillance. He, he, he thought that there needed to be a book that articulated those technological dynamics to people who are in communities that are criminalized. So that's what that's a project that we're working on. And then I've also become really interested in thinking about privacy and surveillance, not through the lens of individual rights and autonomy, but through the lens of forms of collective life that are criminalized. And I have a feeling lots of people have probably written about this. So I have a lot of reading to do, but um, if entrepreneurial citizenship is about valorizing one way of being social with other people, being collaborative and generating value, then in some ways this is like the underside of that. Whereas like you also have forms of life that are absolutely criminalized um, and seen as threats and um, it'd be useful to understand kind of how those dynamics work and how coalitions can be formed to fight those processes. Lily, thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for, thank you for the really thoughtful questions. And I do hope that we talk about how the tech, politics of technology can you know can take shape going forward together i hope so and that was lily irani the author of the award-winning book chasing innovation making entrepreneurial citizens in modern india i'm karthik nachipan and you've been listening to the lake podcast